You're listening to X-Ray FM on KXRY, Portland at 91.1 and 107.1 in Portland and 91.7 FM in Nahalem, Manzanita and Rockaway Beach. Streaming online everywhere at xray.fm. I'm your host, Emmy Ritter. I'm executive director of Raphael House of Portland. And in celebration of International Women's Day, X-Ray FM is hosting 12 hours of programming, amplifying women's voices and providing intersectional education on a diverse range of issues impacting women in Portland and beyond. I'm honored to join them today. Between now and 7 p.m., you'll be hearing some of Portland's most impactful community leaders, educators, activists, artists, and professionals as they tell their stories to educate, empower, and inspire change. As part of today's programming, I'll be talking with my longtime Raphael House colleague, Alicia Rios, and my friend and colleague, Jessica Mathis of Welcome Home Coalition. We're talking with local housing advocates, Jessica and Alicia, to discuss the experience that domestic violence survivors are having in the midst of our housing and homelessness crisis. We know that domestic violence is a leading cause of homelessness in women and children, particularly women of color, and that survivors have unique needs, strengths, and challenges they experience and must overcome to find and maintain safe and stable housing. As we talk, we're going to explore and discuss how nonprofits in Portland are working together to support survivors, and in doing so, keeping them safely housed and wrapping around to maintain that safety. Despite today's theme, we recognize that people of every gender identity experience domestic and sexual violence and want to spotlight this, along with the inclusivity of services to our listening audience. Okay, I just want to reintroduce myself. I'm Emery Ritter. I go by she, her pronouns. I'm the executive director at Raphael House of Portland. We're one of 12 domestic violence agencies here in uh, Multnomah County who are supporting survivors as they find safe and stable housing. And I'm here with um, Jessica Mathis and Alicia Rios, who I'm going to ask to introduce themselves right now with pronouns, the agency you work for, and of course, your name. Jessica. Of course. My name is Jessica Mathis. I use she, they pronoun. I'm with the Welcome Home Coalition, and I am the regional organizer at the coalition. I also used to work with Bradley Engel, and that's how I know Emmy and Alicia. And I ran a housing program for survivors of domestic and sexual violence, one that was culturally specific for African-American survivors. Thanks, Jessica. Alicia. My name is Alicia Rios, and I go by she, hers, and I am the housing coordinator at Raphael House, and I've been there since 2005, and I coordinate the housing program. And Alicia, you've been at Raphael House since 2005, but in doing housing-specific work for survivors for years and years before that. Yeah, I started with the domestic violence field in um, 1996. Thanks, Alicia. It's a long time. It is. <laughs> um, Alicia, do you want to talk about what Raphael House does in general? Because we do a lot of other things outside of housing. Okay. Raphael House is, like you said at the beginning, it's a shelter started in 1977. And we've been serving families since then. Uh We've been serving the domestic violence survivors um, outside of the shelter, which is our biggest uh, program there. Uh, it's housing. When a family gets uh, selected for housing, we work with them. Um, I work with Alicia Morales and other um, 
advocate there. Uh, and we also have other wraparound services like a prevention education program, uh, DV mentors, and the advocacy center. When Alicia is talking about our DV mentors, she's talking about our domestic violence recovery mentors who get to work with survivors who um, are also experiencing um, addiction and working through their own um, substance abuse recovery. It's a great program, and we're really excited to have it be integrated into all our other programs. Um, when she talks about our advocacy center program, we this is really, truly our wraparound services that she gets to work really closely with. Thank you, Alicia. Um, Jessica, do you want to tell us a little bit about Welcome Home and what Welcome Home Coalition does? Absolutely. Welcome Home Coalition is a regional coalition uh, composed of about now 80 nonprofits, uh, nonprofits including service providers or uh, nonprofits that are a little bit tangential to housing like food, hygiene, um, and other services, as well as nonprofit housing developers. Um, our coalition was founded around creating a bond to build more affordable housing and has since expanded. Um, we were part of uh, passing the most recent supportive housing services measures with our partners here together. And we essentially do grassroots advocacy um, for the most vulnerable members of our community. And I think what makes Welcome Home Coalition a little bit unique um, in, in the work that we're doing is that, you know, we're not a part of the continuum of care. So um, I think Emmy will talk a little bit more about what the continuum of care means, but we exist outside of, of the sort of greater county funding and, um, politics as you will. So we're allowed to really be um, authentic and um, sort of push back and assist agencies that don't have the capacity for advocacy because they're busy doing the hard work and labor of housing people able to sort of provide that additional capacity um, on behalf of our nonprofit community. So uh, we're here to be a support. And, you know, our overarching goal is that everyone, um, everyone uh, deserves safe and affordable housing. So um, that is our goal. And I'm, I'm hoping that one day that I can be out of a job. <laughs> we all hope that. Alicia, would you like that? I would love that. <laughs> We're really grateful for the coalition because um, it allows this continuum of care, including domestic violence agencies, to continue the work, as you were saying. And we... I, I, Love the term continuum of care because it truly is that. We start with people when they're in their most vulnerable place in crisis and we are able to move them through to um, in in relationship with other agencies, working really close with other agencies and through the, um, the amazing funding that we get through the county to keep people, get people and keep people housed. So um, with the support of Welcome Home Coalition, we can actually get our voices out there and and keep the uh, good work going. Um, and there's lots of people with questions out there about um, how local governments and nonprofits are addressing Portland's worsening housing crisis and how those dollars are actually being spent. Um, I know that Raphael House, we're working really hard to um, make sure that every dollar that we get through us gets right to those families to keep them housed through rental assistance and utility assistance. And Elise is going to talk more about that later. Um, and it's really complicated and nuanced, um, and I'm hoping we can get into that. And I would say it's completely complicated and nuanced, particularly for domestic violence agencies, because we have an extra um, 
mandate and uh, job to keep survivors safe. And I'm hoping the two of you could really tap into that. Um, we have to keep our work really confidential um, for that safety. And so a lot of our work and um, Alicia and I were talking on the way here that what she does isn't seen. The day-to-day -day work she does is not seen because of our job in keeping survivors safe. Um, and yet there's many different needs in the community with different homeless po populations. And um, it seems as if the community is really seeing it as one monolith right now. It's homelessness. Homeless people are one people, and there's many different um, people out there struggling and um, and are vulnerable for different reasons. And as I said earlier, domestic violence is the number one cause of domestic violence for, for women and children, particularly women of color. Um, Jessica, tell us what you see out in the current housing landscape in Portland, and maybe specifically... Um, touch into what your, your experience is working with survivors, um, and how that is, um, uh, landing in the community and what you're seeing, um, from this like 300 foot view at Welcome Home Coalition. <laughs> uh, it's really interesting because, you know, I, I come from the DV continuum and the domestic violence continuum. And when you're in it, it really feels like the domestic violence agencies are doing a lot of, I don't know what the right word, not revolutionary, but probably on the the forefront of, of work that is trauma-informed and participant-centered. And then you get out into the broader um, housing continuum, and it is not that. And not only is it not that, but the voices of, the voices and the experiences of the folks that we try to we try to uplift and prioritize in 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 the domestic violence continuum are not present at all it's you know it's it's a, it's a lot of sing, it's it, ex, it excludes largely folks with who are parenting um minor children uh seniors um lgbtq folks folks of color and the work tends to be a little bit more I hate to say it, but bang for your buck. It's like, how many folks can we move off the streets and into housing at the expense often of the direct service workers who are doing that work, uh, which I do think to a certain extent exists in, in all of the continuums, unfortunately, but also um, sometimes at the expense of the folks receiving services. And I, I believe in the, in the, in the domestic violence continuum, we do our absolute best to match families and individuals with the right housing resource so that that resource can work and so that it reduces the, um, trauma that folks experience when they move in and out of housing, uh, feeling like systems are failing them, not getting their needs met, but in the greater, continuum because there is such an incredibly high need and there's a high need in the domestic violence continuum. But when you basically say it's everybody, the, there are so many of our members of our community who are experiencing homelessness and housing instability. And it's often people just scraping by to get whatever resource they can or being uh, matched with a resource that is inappropriate. And I think this is perhaps where some of the conversations around 
people wanting to be homeless or, you know... She put air quotes around wanting. Yes. <laughs> wanting to be homeless or people um, who are... I've heard this recently. People who are not houseable, which I... I've... I don't agree with that sentiment, but I do think when you put, when you match someone with the wrong housing resource, that's what happens. The work the DV continuum is doing, domestic violence continuum is doing is also fairly siloed because of those confidentiality um, restrictions that Emmy mentioned earlier. And the fact that, that we use a different, um, and different and private data collection um, because we protect the the identity of our folks. I feel like DV providers are often not um, being invited to tables with the larger continuum. I, you know, I attend a lot of in our coalition work and in our work with the city, the county and the state, I often see a lack of domestic violence providers. And that's actually how I got involved in the first place. When I was working at Bradley Engle, we had some gaps in leadership and I, you know, stepped up because I felt like it was really important to represent the needs of survivors. And I would go to those spaces and there would be really no, not a whole lot of other people there. Uh, Raphael House was always, I, I believe, trying to make that effort to be present. Um, but, you know, when I looked around for other DV providers, you know, they weren't there. And I, and I still do believe that, um, domestic violence is often excluded from those tables. So I, and, and domestic violence survivors, I think the folks we work with, they don't fit neatly into boxes. And I think that the mainstream service providers and as well as our elected officials and our just on the way we structured services, they don't, always know how to handle the fact that survivors don't fit into these boxes. We're talking about folks who have incredible amounts of trauma, um, lots of needs for support, mental health, physical health, um, uh, assistance with finances, reproductive issues. There's just so many domestic violence touches every aspect of a person's life, but that does not fit neatly into the definitions of what a what a person who the system would consider very vulnerable or high needs is. So I think in 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 our housing resources, we're trying to do our best to work with the resources we have to make them support supportive for survivors. But we also need the folks that are designing these um these programs and putting requirements on the funding streams to understand that there needs to be an increased um, flexibility for survivors. There needs to be access to programs like permanent supportive housing and longer term housing, recovery housing, all of the housing that every other member of our continuum has access to. But often survivors are excluded because they don't and not just survivors, honestly, a lot of people <laughs> don't uh, meet this very specific threshold of what is considered to be a very vulnerable person, a very high needs person. Because, I mean, really, the, the big lingo there is what we call chronically homeless mm -hmm. or chronic and persistent mental health, which trauma that is from an incident even if that incident is like a 30-year marriage, but <laughs> a trauma from an incident does not usually fall into what the system considers chronic and persistent mental illness. Mm -hmm. And 
uh, chronic homeless, which is homelessness, which is ongoing homelessness. It's what a lot of people think of when they think of folks that are living outside. Um, most survivors are not having that specific experience. Some do, but a lot don't. They're, you know, going back and forth from an unsafe environment that is causing a lot of instability, but again, it's not meeting that definition. So I I think the work that the coalition is doing just for survivors, but also just in general for people who experience homelessness in so many different ways, we want people with lived experience to be able to tell folks, this is my experience. This is what I would have needed to get out of homelessness so that we can actually create housing programs that support folks and meet folks where they're at, as opposed to creating these little boxes where we're like, okay, a survivor was fine. They're not fine. And they have a short-term intervention and they'll be fine afterwards. And it doesn't address the fact that I think one of the more disturbing things for me is I started to, um, when you work in domestic violence services, our focus is on the survivor. It's not on the perpetrator. We're not the criminal justice system, but I would start when I'm safety planning with participants, I would have so many participants in their early 20s. And when they would tell me the age of their perpetrator, it was really connecting the dots that like a good chunk of my participants had um, were in a relationship that, you know, would be considered a statutory rape situation. So when we're talking about a survivor experiencing violence, we're also talking about often a young person, particularly a young woman who wasn't able to complete their education. We're talking about somebody who was experiencing a level of assault and coercion at a very young age. So it's not as clear cut as someone experienced DV, get them into a new house, everything will be fine. There's a lot of stuff going on there. And it's just currently we don't have electeds and program um, creators funding stream creators who really understand the the nuance of what it means for somebody who's experienced um, violence from such a young age, not only from their abuser, but also from their primary uh, family unit often. So it's, it's a lot. It's a lot when you look yeah. at it. I'm having an aha moment as you're talking about chronic homelessness and um, persistent mental illness. Um, and the trauma from domestic violence. We know that survivors may not be um, categorized as chronically homeless because they're living in a dangerous situation. All their choices have been taken away. And there's really real reasons why they're staying with somebody who's abusive um, because all their other choices were taken away. The, the financial abuse is real. 98% um, of uh, survivors are also experiencing financial abuse from that abuser. So these are the things I'm thinking about as you're talking um, and also really thinking about what Alicia um, experiences have been working with survivors on the daily, um, specifically with that trauma-informed lens. You've been in the field for a really long time. And I know you have, on the way here, you were telling me about specific families, what they're telling you and what um, survivors are experiencing in terms of um, uh, how they get to us, how do they get into our system, and then how do they stay safely housed? What what keeps them that way? So, Alicia, what does your day to day look like? What do you do with people when they're when they get into your program? When people are referring to my program, I meet with them, uh, get to connect with them, hear them out, um, and like just said, sometimes they're selected for program for really short programs, but need 
longer term programs to be able to address everything that they go through. And we do our best, um, but we know that way longer term programs are needed um, because survivors sometimes they they've been they've been in DV since children sometimes and they are affected by it and it doesn't take a year or two to overcome that and I do try my best to connect families to resources to we as a team I said I work with one other advocate we help them search for housing and so it might not be the best it's a start uh, and we work with them to prepare them for other longer term housing once the programs are over uh, Alicia, um, one of the things that we were talking about earlier was um, emergency um, housing vouchers, which you've been able to access and and um, uh, and use through the county's uh, resource. How has that been different than the two-year programs that you've been doing all over these years? I am really excited at, for the emergency housing vouchers because this gives families some time, some more time, and they're not afraid that a program is going to be lost in six months, eight months, that they that they have the time to heal and that they can uh, not be worried about how am I going to pay for that housing after this program is over or am I going to be out of a house when this program is over? And I really like that they don't have to fear for of course they will fear for many uh, many things and uh, the effects of dv take a long a long time but at least they don't have to have the fear of i'm losing my house my kids are going to be without i'm not going to be able to have enough to meet my daily needs or to take care of my children and Having those vouchers will allow them to stay in their housing programs until they get into a situation where they're getting better income when they income out of housing, but they don't have to, for example, if one of their children gets sick or something comes up where a condition, health condition comes up, that they don't have to, that they can take the time to care for themselves and take care of their children and they don't have to continue to work, that they can take some time to really focus on themselves and not be afraid that if I take the time, I'm going to be losing my housing. It, you're really making it sound like one tiny little crisis can can really throw somebody off. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yes, one tiny little crisis can really throw them off. They might be doing good and in their in working towards healing, but let's say, for example, just one of the examples that a family had been battling before with cancer, they were doing good. All of a sudden, there's a flare up and now they're dealing with that. But let's say that throws up their housing because illness, it, you lose your income, you lose your job, you can really, you'll be out on the street and looking for resources. And not only you, sometimes your children and sometimes you're dealing uh, illness can also bring stress and it can affect your mental health. Yeah. And I, I what that reminds me of is 
it kind of gets back to what I was saying about how siloed our systems are. Because I also worked with a participant who was a senior and had cancer. The way our systems are siloed, if you have a medical issue, that is not addressed by DV housing resources. And so you would have to somehow exit or combine resources to another program that did work with senior or disability services, even though this person's already connected. So it's it's wild how that, that happens. Yeah. When services work well, what is that? What does that look like? What is let's see. What is the the landscape of that? In order for services to work well, I think we need to work together. We need to uh, not like not only how am I trying to explain it? Not only the DV system, but we also need to be connected to other to other services out there with the homelessness, with the aging and disability, with the uh, other services that family needs. Um, in order when we're all working together and we're, I want to say, co-case manage when we're, when we can reach out and say, okay, so you from this, um, aging and disabilities can work with this family doing this. I'm going to do the rent. You're going to focus on the health. They're going to focus on maybe the disability. But we all we're we're all wrapping around and taking and trying to help people. It works best because families are getting services from. They have a they create they create a a system that feels safe for them and they have more than one person to go to and they get to know a lot of wraparound services. Jessica, you were mentioning when we were on a break of uh, when the when the system really worked well for somebody. Does it match a little bit what Alicia is talking about? It is. I would say the it was actually no. Actually, it's a little bit different. Um, I for survivors, they're for every, I want to be clear for everybody. Not having housing is absolutely an emergency and absolutely urgent. Every day without housing is trauma and stress. But there's a specific aspect of prolonged exposure to violence and, and, and it often is sexual violence as well. Um, my, the agency that I worked for, our resource center is in a very central area with businesses and, a you know, PSU and all of that stuff is surrounding. And we, we had a, a woman who was familiar with our agency because she had a business in the area and, you know, she, she owned her business. She was engaged. She had a teenage daughter and, you know, as far as she was concerned, her life was, you know, going, going fairly well. And her daughter expressed to her that the fiance had, um, had presented himself, uh, inappropriate in, in a sexual nature towards her. And, you know, m you know, mom was very protective. She was like, I know this agency there in the community. And she shows up as often happens on our doorstep with like luggage and normally this is a really heartbreaking situation because we rarely ever have the resources 
at that moment that that person needs. But I just happened to be in my office and we just happened to have motel voucher resources. And I just happened to either have the time or find the time because I think it was towards the end of the day. And so I was like, I heard her. I was able to do a motel voucher. They went straight from our agency to a motel. Mom and daughter were safe. Daughter was no longer in a situation to be exposed to, you know, further trauma or further experiences. And then again, another place our system often fails is someone gets in a motel and then it's, it's what if, what, what's next? They often can't get into shelter, but, um, I was able to bring this person to our resource coordination team. She got on, on the first try, she got housing resource. And so she never had to even go to shelter. She went straight from the motel situation you know, I think I helped her move in on a weekend. We safety planned around when the abuser wasn't going to be home. And then um, I was also able to connect her with our economic empowerment program that was able to make sure that because I believed that they worked together at the business. It was, you know, um, and to make sure that financially she was separated and, and, and secured from the abuser. So within like two weeks, she was you know, her daughter had notified her of the the violence in the home. She got to our agency. She went straight to a motel. She went straight from the motel into a housing situation. We got her, you know, movers. I, you know, we safety planned. We connected her with financial resources. And while I will never minimize the trauma that the daughter experienced, even on that one incident. You can just imagine how much more trauma the, the the daughter never missed school. The mom didn't have to lose her business she worked for. There they were never on the streets. They were never in their cars. They were never wondering if they needed to go back home with this abuser. They never had to to give up any of the things they were working for. They were just able to be safe. And then from there, mom and daughter could, you know, I think they engaged in therapeutic services just to, to talk about what happened, but it minimized the trauma mm. and the mom didn't have to lose everything and the daughter didn't have to experience more violence. So that is how our system should work. Mm -hmm. But it, in all my years working in DV, that it's still to this day, it's been like over a decade, I think. And it still stands out to me because I just, I was like, I couldn't believe how we did it. And honestly, as a provider, it was less traumatic for me. I right. would go home. <laughs> there are times you go home just feeling like garbage. Like you are going home to your safe home and you're remembering the faces of the mom with the baby in the 20 degree weather that you had to tell about some vague uh, shelter options and knowing that they were going to be outside. And so it just decreases the trauma all around when we can actually serve people in the way that they deserve to be served. It's truly trauma-informed care on many levels, yeah. And what you're also bringing up is the the nuance of safety planning. It's very specific to to the survivor you're working with. And when we get find, help somebody find housing, there's safety planning around the housing as well. Well, and an additional piece, you know, this family was also a family of color and from an immigrant community. And I think one of the things we also lose sight of is that homelessness and domestic violence disproportionately happen to um, women, women and folks of color. And when we, when we let, 
when we allow folks to slip through the cracks and we allow folks to experience trauma, we are doing that to specific communities um, and also to the providers. A lot of us are women and women of color. And, you know, that is just I've talked a lot with um I'll talk a little bit more about it later because we worked with Raphael House with our uh, doing a training with our Voices for Housing Justice program. But I just wanted to quickly say that there has been no training with women of color where a significant percentage of them haven't experienced DV, hmm. even just in non-DV uh, agencies that we've worked with their participants. So just keeping in mind that, you know, when we talk about things like racial equity, this is a part of it. And we're not serving folks correctly and we're not being trauma-informed. We are actually not meeting our goals of racial equity in the, in the community. Exactly. And if we're trying to serve survivors, survivors of color, um, and in the systems that don't even know they're serving survivors of color, survivors, we're not recognizing that there's a lifelong history of potential trauma of violence. And what I was hearing you really talk about, both of you, is that when a family gets housed, there's a lot of fear about losing their housing, about what the next step is, about how am I going to financially get by? And if we know that somebody's walking into that resource afraid, it's our job to reduce as many points of fear and, and scarcity as possible. And as a community, it's our job to do that. And I think um, Welcome Home Coalition and Raphael House and the rest of the domestic violence continuum, the house, houseless continuum, work really hard to do that. I want to circle back to safety planning, though, and how safety planning could be really specific based on somebody's um, immigration status, on um, on who the how dangerous the abuser is. And Alicia, I know you've had experiences of keeping people housed and having to move people because of um, safety issues. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, we... Sometimes have to when people get found because of course we're not in that large of a city that people don't get found. Uh, we have had there's incidents. Uh, user shows up, they found them, and let's say they got found at a store at a bus. We have to safely plan around that how to keep them safe, how to keep their children safe, and sometimes moving is the only way that a person will be will feel a little bit of safety, of course. And sometimes when they get found, they get harassed at jobs where sometimes they end up uh, losing their jobs or having to or having to leave that job out of fear. Um, so we have to work at ways of how, how do we keep them safe? Moving is one thing, but then there comes a lot more to keeping a family safe. You make it sound like moving so easy. <laughs> moving is not easy. <laughs> moving is not easy. There's oh a lot, God. a lot of things that are needed. And sometimes um, when we first housed a person, there was so many barriers and hoops that we had to go through. And sometimes... Going back to the next landlord, we have to also go back to that. Maybe there's, we have to relive everything that we had to do at the beginning. So no, it is not easy. It's it's hard work moving so what, someone. When you say at the beginning, you mean building a relationship with the landlord? Mm -hmm. Building a relationship with the landlord, um, 
talking and um, making plans to overcome barriers, connecting them to services that are going to help them get housing ready at Rafael House. We really try to, when people are in our shelter, we try to use the programs that are out there, the S2S program, uh, Shelter to Stability program that helps uh, sometimes eliminate some of the debts that families have. Uh, we help them pull their criminal rec their uh, credit records, sorry, their credit records because landlords now are making it very, very hard to accept a person into housing. Um, for example, if you have debt, you have to have debt under some say under a thousand because I was trying to house a family that had debt of a thousand four hundred. And if you can get that person to get, of course, we did help the family and we were able to help the family. But sometimes if you pandemic got us in a big way. People were losing jobs. People were hardly making it by having trouble connecting to resources. And a lot of debt came with pandemic. And now uh, landlords are saying, let's say you had to use your cards to survive because you could connect to some resources, but not everything. But you have a $5,000 debt and you have no resources. How are you going? And then the landlord's telling you, yeah, I'll give you a second chance, but you have to have that debt under $1,000. It's hard. It's hard because you lost your job. You're barely starting over. How, how do you get there? And... Some people end up like, I think Jessica touched on this, some people end up getting accepted for programs, but many, maybe because of barriers, they lost that opportunity. Yeah, there's also the emotional. I mean, I think not that <laughs> there's like the real practical getting someone in housing who has barriers, who maybe had a rough rental history because of the domestic violence they experience in housing. But people also forget you know, most survivors, they're parenting. So, or even just, even if they're single, right, it's changing location can mean change of therapists, medical providers, often teachers, schools. Yeah. Like I, I, you know, I'm a survivor of domestic violence and some of my closest emotional supports when I was a kid were my teachers. Like my teacher paid my dorm deposit. I always say, shout out Miss Frank. Um, but, you know, if if and I was lucky that I was able to stay in the same school district, but changing school districts for a lot of kids can mean less supports, you know, things they have to counselors there. Um, I've seen a lot of kiddos regress, you know, when they're young because of this continually having to move. So, yes, it is the real struggle of actually getting someone rehoused and within the timeline of the program it, and that gets all really messy, but it's also just the impact of having to like reroute and uproot your life every single time somebody finds you. Mm -hmm. And it's hard on children. It's hard. They're just now getting new to their new home. They're getting to like the area. They connect with resources and all of a sudden let's get up and move. One of the greatest things we can do as a, as a wraparound service That's is... Go ahead, Alicia. That's what I was going to say. Uh, in 2006, we started the prevention education program. Uh, we have some great uh, advocates or some great people working at all the public uh, Portland public schools. I That is one of my... 
I was telling Emmy, besides my program, which I really enjoy, my biggest love is the prevention education uh, program because they get to go out and they get to uh, talk with children. And hopefully those um, people in the schools or those children in the schools sometimes take the information out to families that might be to their own families or sometimes to somebody else that they know. Yeah, so it's a deeper reach, and a, and we're going to put us all out of business, hopefully. Yeah, by, uh, I'm hope in the future. <laughs> Could I tag on one thing about safety planning? Please, okay. Um, it's also this is also where cultural competency comes is really big and is super important. Uh, one of one of my favorite moms to work with i know we're not supposed to have favorites but she was so awesome um but she came from a she was an she was an immigrant um and she came from uh, a very religiously conservative culture and the abuser had you know passports to a country where abduction and getting that child back would would not be likely and you know, I am not an expert on her culture, but really listening to her and validating her concerns. We had a great lawyer with legal aid and we were actually able to get a restraining order against the brother of the abuser, which is very uncommon um, to have it extend to families because we got the judge to recognize that this stalking behavior of the brother was actually worrying because of the way she and her sister had been brought over from their country to marry these two brothers and then were experiencing an extreme level of, of domestic violence being, not to say that anybody's experience is worse, but we're talking about basically what, what looks like, you know, almost sexual slavery and being locked in a basement. And there was real concerns that the brothers were working together and might abduct those children back to the country of origin. So being able to safety plan and get everybody on board and understanding cultural context, legal context, immigration status, how it how it matters when someone is being sponsored um, by the abuser uh, for citizenship. Mm -hmm. These are also important. You can't just, if you just go in there, you know, I don't, guns blazing is a terrible analogy when talking about domestic violence, but if you just go in and you take that survivor out of a situation without safety planning, you can actually do more harm. Yeah. And, and I'm sure everybody in this room knows the most dangerous point for a survivor is when they initiate leaving. Yeah. So for people who come from very, you know, it can depend on the culture, immigration status, and the type of, the abuser type of violence they're perceiving, sometimes you have to make sure that leave is done. And that all of the ducks in, are in a row and that the legal protections are in a row or that that survivor can be in a much worse position and it gets into that, well, why didn't she leave? You know, why didn't they leave type of thing? And it's like, well, because it, it can get it can get worse for some people. It can get much, much worse. And a lot of survivors, you know, unfortunately are are murdered by their abuser. So I feel so honored to be in this room with the two of you. You're not only experts in housing, but you're experts in domestic violence work. And you're, you just pointed out the the real complexities that um, advocates have to handle every single day. So you're not only navigating the, the housing resources, the shelter resources, finding other resources and other systems to wrap or truly wrap around, as you said earlier, Alicia, but you're, you're, you have to always be thinking, 
in this um, kind of protective bubble, creating this correct uh, protective bubble, which is really often working really slowly and make, making sure those steps are the right steps. When we're finding somebody housing, making sure that that's a safe neighborhood, that those kids can go to that school safely, that there is a restraining order at, and the school knows about it, that um, that um, the survivor can get to work and to services safely on, is this bus route safe? There's all these different pieces that are um, really essential to our work and that we are always willing to share with other systems because we know that survivors and all the other systems that we, we interact with over time. Just remember, you're listening to X-Ray FM. This is Amplify Women. Uh, we're celebrating uh, International Women's Day. Um, and I'm here with Jessica Mathis from Welcome Home Coalition and Raphael House's housing coordinator extraordinaire, Alicia Rios. I'm Emmy Ritter, executive director from Raphael House. We're, um, we're going to keep talking about um, how survivors um, manage through um, a very complicated homeless and housing system and how the, the system, the domestic violence continuum of care, um, really wraps around and makes sure that um, survivors are, one, safe, two, continue to be safe, and three, um, get and maintain safe and stable housing. If, did I say safe enough? Because that's really, that's really what we're all about. Um, one of the things that we get to do, and Alicia brought this program up before, is we have this, uh, we have a program called Shelter Disability, which helps not only Raphael House, but the two other um, uh, domestic violence agencies who have shelters, specifically uh, folks who are in shelter, we could help them pay down their debt that was caused by the domestic violence um, that is why they're in shelter. We want to get them out of shelter as soon as possible, but we want to have help that happen um, with as much resource and stability as possible. So helping pay it down debt helps them get applied to a, a, a new home and landlords accept that application and then they can move into a new safe home. And that is our goal. Um, that program over the years has expanded exponentially. And one of the cool things that has happened over the years is our um, a group we call SWAG, which are survivors are worthy, awesome, and gutsy, gutsy where we, ha we work with um, survivors who have been through our shelter system, who are now safe and stably housed, running their own lives, rocking it. And they come back and they really, they really um, are helping to guide and offer resources and support to survivors who are still in shelter. So it's a peer-led group. And what we've gotten to do with that group is not only create community and resource and um, self-discovery for not only the people in the groups, but for the the um, our staff who are um, leading those groups, but we we brought in guest speakers and uh, who are experts in the field, whether it be people who work at WorkSource or people who are running their own business and helping um, helping survivors think through what those next amazing steps they could have so they can create sort of their own wealth and thrive. And that's really what we want. Um, and I think ultimately our community wants because that keeps people safe. There's that word again, safe. And also um, uh, really helps us um, limit the amount of homelessness there is in the community. And Jessica really brought it up earlier Homelessness, the survivors who are homeless aren't necessarily seen. They're not necessarily the people that um, are on the streets because they're staying with abusers, they're um, they're couch surfing, they're staying with family until those houses possibly are unsafe also for them to stay. And then they ultimately sometimes end up in our shelters. So back to swag. 
Uh, survivors are worthy, awesome, and gutsy. We had this great opportunity with um, Jessica and her, your training that you mentioned. I would love to hear more about that because it's not only taking the what survivors are overcoming in the moment, it's, it's, um, it's giving them this uh, vision of of empowerment and support for themselves and their community. And it's kind of building out beyond what we're doing on the day-to-day in terms of um, interrupting domestic violence. It's moving beyond. Yes. Voices for Housing Justice is what the name of our training. And it is my baby. I, I was literally hired to um, to do this training and it 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 blends what I what I love to do most, working with people in a trauma-informed way, but also pushing, you know, being proactive and actually working to get the resources that we need. So with our with our training, I made this curriculum from scratch. It did come from um, CSH's Speak Up program was sort of the original uh, uh, inspiration. But the training we have done is very Portland specific. It's community specific. It's demographic specific. And what I love about this training is when I was a domestic violence advocate, I would constantly get people telling me, can you bring a survivor to testify? And I was like, absolutely not. <laughs> and, you know, I, and I, you know, I went to Salem back and forth a lot to, to testify, but it would have been great to have a survivor to be able to speak on behalf of them themselves and their community. But it just wasn't possible to have somebody who is in the midst of violence, um, whose priority is safety, who hasn't had a chance to think about the stories they want to share, you know, in terms of what emotional trauma they want to share, privacy, um, being in a place to be able to discuss that in a way that just feels, you know, um, doesn't feel re-traumatizing, isn't exploitative, something they've had a chance to think about. And so our trainings are about 12 hours long. So we dig into education, the history of Portland, statistics, like why they're speaking to certain people, why they're sharing their stories, getting people on board, really getting people's, you know, making sure it's led and that, yes, it's housing focused, but we're allowing the people in the trainings to decide what the priorities and the focus of the training are. And then so when people come to places, they've had a chance to think, you know, they're, they're speaking in a way, I never want anyone to change their voice and their culture, but they're speaking in a way that can be heard. And they've had a chance to think about what they want to share and what they don't want to share. And with SWAG, because, you know, um, the women in, in that program have been at a DV, they're at a place where they can then speak about it. They're not in the midst of trauma. And, you know, we also worked with Women's First, which works with incarcerated women, and so many of them experienced DV as well. But they are at a place where they're moving towards healing and they're ready to be an advocate. And so working with people who are ready to do this work, making sure that it's coming from them, there's no pressure. We're here to educate and, and sort of create the community around it. Just, uh, Yes. <laughs> I have so much passion for it. I think we have a, need a whole other show of yes, just, of I just could, this. Yeah. It's, it was really exciting and I got to witness some of it and it was just, it was just like, survived. they were just so excited about it. They really, um, their shoulders were back, their heads were lifted. It was a, it was a beautiful thing. Um, before we close up, I want to ask really quickly of both of you, what do you feel, what's the biggest concern you have in one sentence and then also, what is your biggest hope? What do you feel hopeful about? 
my biggest concern and my biggest sadness is seeing so many people without a home and so many people that just all the people, I think all the people deserve a safe home somewhere where they can come home at night and relax and not have to worry about all that's going on um, and how unsafe we really are. And they deserve a home, their children deserve a home. And and my biggest hope is that, like Jessica says, that one time, one day we will come and it will happen that we won't have our jobs. <laughs> People are well taken care of. Absolutely. And yeah. even though, like I said, even though, well, one sentence. Okay. No, no, go. Say more. <laughs> voice and even, even though we're not perfect, there's still a lot of work that has to be done. I... Before coming to Raphael House and being an employee there, I love Raphael House. Through all these years, I love Raphael House. And when I leave, I will love Raphael House because of the work that I do see happening there. Of all the services, the advocacy center, the, the opportunities that family have to engage for as many years as they need to. And their families. My biggest fear is um, that in our rush to solve homelessness and we, we start looking at these ideas like mass encampments, that this will really be unsafe spaces for survivors. We're talking about putting survivors in places where they their abusers have access to them, where we are potentially increasing um, the involvement of the criminal justice system, CPS. Um, all of these things that really neg negatively impact survivors as they're they're trying to get by and sleep in their car and keep their kiddos safe. We just, we cannot force people into these types of things. And that is a real worry that we'll, we'll have a disproportionate access on survivors, communities of color, LGBTQ folks. I really worry about that. So that's work that we're doing. What makes, makes me hopeful is that Welcome Home is doing a lot of sort of progressive advocacy. Um, one of the big ones is uh, passing a guaranteed basic income as well as uh, efforts to expand um, access to affordable housing and to permanent supportive um, housing. There's a lot of funds out there with our supportive housing services measure that was passed. But really, um, a lot of survivors and just a lot of struggling people parenting, they they hit what we call a benefits cliff. And, you know, so much of, I, I believe the statistic is, you know, anybody can experience homelessness or, but, uh, or domestic violence, but your, the, how intense the domestic violence is and the length of the domestic violence depends a lot on money, on income. Mm -hmm. So when we're doing this work to say, you can have access to permanent supportive housing, there is a basic income that can be combined with ERDC, uh, TANF, uh, which is Temporary Assistance for Needy Families, and food stamps, we're actually making it where survivors don't feel like they're having to choose between financial safety and keeping their kids housed and leaving an abuser. So those things make me hopeful, but uh, equal parts hope and hopeful and scared at, the, at this moment. Thank you both. Um, I just, I'm, I'm so hopeful around uh, the expertise that is continuing to happen in our system. And what I really heard today was that it takes a village. It takes a whole community to really figure out and and help um, survivors find housing, stay housed, 
be successful and thrive, be a voice for the community. And I'm so grateful for this conversation with Alicia and Jessica. Thank you so much. Jessica, thank you for all that you're doing. Thank you you for all that you're doing. (laughs) And thank you, Emmy, for being such a just badass executive director that's always putting uh, her employees and her, the folks that we serve first. Thanks, Jessica. Yeah. It's it's the way we got to do this. And you've been listening to Amplify Women on X-Ray FM, a celebration of International Women's Day. I'm your host, Emmy Ritter, Executive Director at Raphael House of Portland. Stay tuned from now until 7 p.m. for more. The radio is yours.